Welcome to the Particle Podcast, where we talk about science and the people who just love it. I'm Rose, and I'm obsessed with cool plants. Which is why today, I'm very excited to be joined by Laura Skates. Laura is a passionate plant lady and an expert on WA's carnivorous plants. We had a chat about hungry plants, fieldwork, and why plants are cooler than animals. We hope this episode leaves you hungry for more. So welcome, Laura. Thanks, Rose. Please explain, what do you actually do? I guess what I actually do is... So I do research on carnivorous plants and I focus on their nutritional ecology. So basically, how much do they actually rely on insects in the wild to get the nutrients they need? Before we get in too deep, let me define what a carnivorous plant is. As a group, broadly, they have leaves designed to trap and digest prey. So yep, that means anything from larvae to bugs to salamanders or even poo. There's five types. The first is snap traps. They're like a Venus flytrap, so they kind of look like a mouth with interlocking teeth. You've got sticky traps, which have this glue substance on them that catch the insects. Suction traps, they're aquatic. They have a bag with a trap door, and as the insect lands on the door, water rushes in with it, and then the bug can't get back out. There's pitcher traps, which are a jug with digestive juices, so the prey ends up falling into the jug and being digested. And then finally, there's corkscrew carnivorous plants. And these ones are the only ones not in Australia, and there's only one group. They kind of have a one-way maze. If you picture going to Ikea, where you can't go backwards, you can only go forwards, and the prey will keep going until it falls to its eventual death. And so that's your PhD project. Yes. Have you finished that now? No, I'm, yeah, I'm still writing it up. Um, I'm nearly, nearly there, hoping to submit it in maybe next month. Was doing your PhD the first time that you'd focused in on carnivorous plants? I'd actually done my honours research prior to that was on carnivorous plants. That one was more focused on, I guess you'd call it an aquatic Venus flytrap. Wow. Yeah. Where where are they? Uh, So they can be found in Australia. There's a population up in the Kimberley. I've never seen it in the wild, um, but it's also found in Asia, Africa and Europe. Wow, that's unreal. How, like, what does it look like? Does it look like a traditional Venus flytrap? So it's got little snap traps like a Venus flytrap, but they're much more tiny. So maybe a few millimetres wide. Yeah. And it's actually aquatic because it floats on the surface of swamps and things like that. Is it trying to eat mosquitoes? Yes. So it catches mosquito larvae in the water. Wow. That's unreal. Yeah. Going into studying carnivorous plants, we're going to go way back. Okay. (laughs) Have you always loved science? Um, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess more I've always loved the natural world yeah. um, and I suppose the science to do with that. I don't know, I've always been interested in the environment and especially growing up here in the southwest corner of WA, it's such a great place for, you know, bushwalks and getting to know the plants we have here and animals and rocks and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's always been something that I've been interested in. Yeah. And did you go on to do biology and stuff through school? Yeah. So I found like, I guess when I was in high school, my favourite TE subjects were biology and English. So I was fascinated by the natural world and then also stories, um, which I guess has carried through to today as well. 
I remember in primary school, I a lot of the projects that I really remember enjoying were about nature and stuff. So we did one about um, bees and honey and that sort of thing. One about surviving in the wild. Um, <laughs> Do you think you could as a eight-year-old or whatever? Uh, <laughs> as an guy? eight-year-old? Mm, not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and even now as a 27-year-old, I'm not sure i'd need a lot of supplies <laughs> at least you'd be able to identify which plants would try to eat you that's right yes <laughs> i would be safe on that front <laughs> do you find that a lot of people don't really understand what a carnivorous plant is in some ways yeah so one of the common misconceptions i get is that people do often ask me you know are they dangerous for humans is there a chance of being caught by them um and i would say the answer is no they're usually pretty small um so you know humans aren't their preferred prey yeah i guess another common misconception people would have is about the actual traps themselves a lot of people think that they're flowers when they see them a lot of the different types of traps people say oh wow that flower is amazing it's actually the leaf which is making up the trap wow yeah and do they also flower or is there no need for flowers yes so the flowers yeah um they also have flowers and the flowers are you know entirely different purpose that's for the reproduction side of things but often carnivorous plants uh, need insects for reproduction too, for you know pollen transfer. So there is some interesting stuff going on with carnivorous plants to make sure that they separate where the trap is to where the uh, flower is, so that they're not trapping the insects they need for pollination. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so they yep. have to grow in a way that separates the two, even though they're so small sometimes. Yeah, so it can happen in different ways. Like sometimes the trap will be at the base of the plant, and then the flowers will be on a long stalk. So you know by distance they're far away but it can also sometimes happen that uh, the leaves will come out first and produce the traps and then they might die away and then the flower will come out later Mm. so that's that happens sometimes with some of our tuberous drosera species in WA. Yeah that's what I wanted to ask how Mm. many carnivorous plant species do we actually have in Western Australia? In Western Australia um, I think it's Somewhere between 100 and 200. Wow. I'm not sure the exact number, but it's quite a lot. Is yeah. it a lot compared to other places? Definitely. We're actually a global centre of carnivorous plant diversity. So, for example, in Europe, there's, I think, three species of Drosera. They're also known as sundews. Um, but here in WA, we've got, yeah, around maybe 100 species of Drosera. Wow. Yeah. And that's, is there a particular part of WA that has more of them? Yeah, so they're sort of concentrated in the southwest corner um, and up in the northern Kimberley region. So there's sort of these two hotspots for carnivorous plants here. Why are they particularly in those areas? So there's a lot of reasons why they might be in those areas, I guess, but particularly the southwest corner is a biodiversity hotspot. Um, so we have an incredible diversity of lots of different types of plants, not just carnivorous ones. But a big part of why we've got so many carnivorous plants is the soil here. So mm. it's really nutrient poor, really old. So a lot of our plants have found ways to adapt to that to get extra nutrients from other sources. Um, And being carnivorous is just one of those ways. And I guess why we have them in the southwest and the Kimberley, but not so much in the middle uh, sort of part of Western Australia, uh, is to do with the climate. So in those areas, so in the middle, it's a bit too dry and arid. Mm. Um, They need, carnivorous plants need a bit more 
uh, water usually in order to grow and produce those amazing traps. With the sticky ones, like mm. so, like sundews, they have that sticky stuff on yes. them to trap the insects. Yeah. What is that made of? Uh, so it's a kind of mucilage, I guess, and it's sort of a water-based sticky I think it's got sugars in it and it's um, got digestive enzymes that that are produced through those um, glands on the leaf surface so yeah it's kind of a sticky gluey kind of substance and yeah when insects get stuck to it they you know end up getting more and more trapped in the glue and especially with the sundews they actually it's not just a passive kind of trap it's actually an active trap so those sticky tentacles wrap around the prey so cover it even more in glue and and then digest it that's amazing yeah (laughs) obviously now you know so much about carnivorous plants certainly a lot more than the average person (laughs) once you graduated high school Mm. what was the path that took you to this point yeah um so I guess after high school I started at university I started off doing a double major or double degree, I guess it was conservation biology and anthropology at the time. But after the first year, I found that I was really, really interested in plants, in botany. Mm. I wasn't so interested in studying animals because that seemed to involve a lot of dissections and things that I was a bit squeamish about. And I just found plants fascinated me because, you know, a lot of the time they are stuck in whatever particular spot they grow in. And they can't just, you know, get up and (laughs) go and find something to eat. Like they have to make do with what they've got around them or, you know, come up with these adaptations. So I guess, yeah, I found that I became so fascinated in plants that I switched my majors. I did conservation biology and botany. And so I dropped the anthropology. But now I sort of wish that I'd I'd kept up a bit with it because I'm fascinated now by how people and plants interact. So I might have to go get my old textbooks and have another look. Yeah. Do you think, is there such thing as an an anthropologist in botany? Is there such a thing? I think there is, yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that are studying sort of the human side of, you know, wildlife, including plants. Yeah, there's heaps of research that is already out there about uh, like the history of, of botany and about how we can communicate botanical sciences better yeah there's there's a lot out there so I'd love to yeah find a research group to do more with that yeah Yeah. what do you say to people when they say plants are boring I say oh no (laughs) (laughs) yeah um I don't know I yeah I don't know what to say I guess that um I just try and see if they they have a minute for me to try and change their mind um because yeah I think to me plants are incredibly fascinating And, you know, it just takes having a closer look at plants around you and thinking about, like, how are they doing what they're doing? Mm. You know, I think it can even be, you know, plants in your garden or in your salad bowl or whatever. You know, you can have a look and think, well, how did that grow like that? And even you go down south and you see those big carry trees. How do they get so tall? You know, there's so many curiosities around plants that I think if people took a moment to think about it a bit more if they did think that they're boring they would actually think oh wow actually plants are pretty cool. (laughs) You know what I think has really made a difference in people's perception of 
botanist. Mm. So I obviously studied botany as well. Yes, yeah. And people weren't particularly interested for the most part yeah. in knowing plants. <laughs> but since the rise of houseplants oh, have yes. gone into fashion, totally. it's done wonders. Totally, yes. Yeah. Do you find people asking more questions? Because they're like, I have a houseplant. Do you know how to fix it? I do get questions like that. The unfortunate thing for me with that is that I'm not much of a gardener. No, so, really <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like that's not really what I studied. Um, I do have houseplants at home, uh, mostly succulents and things that don't require as much attention, shall we say. But yeah, I do get a lot of questions about especially how to grow carnivorous plants. And that's really, oh, that's not my area. Like yeah. I, I, I wish that I was better at growing them, but yeah, I'd have to, I'd have to look into it a bit more. I'm more interested in how they grow in the wild and, you know, what these native species are doing in their, you know, natural habitats. So most of my research has actually been like, yeah, getting out there into the wild and seeing what they do out there. But yeah, I guess houseplants has been a big shift. Yeah. Can you grow carnivorous plants in a pot? I didn't think you could. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, people do grow them in all sorts of things. I suppose one of the considerations is like, I think a lot of people grow them in in pots within like a shallow tray of water so that mm. they can suck up the water that way. But again, it's not really yeah. <laughs> it's not really my area. This wasn't I didn't realize it was I guess legal is the wrong. I didn't realize you could buy them. Well, you can I guess from like places like Bunnings and Waldex um stock like Venus flytraps and Nepenthes pitcher plants and that sort of thing. And there are a lot of local other nurseries that sell carnivorous plants. But that is a really good point that one of the unfortunate realities for carnivorous plants is that they sometimes get poached from the wild. Yeah, so especially like the Venus flytrap in America, there have been a lot of cases of people going out and just digging up plants from the wild and then, you know, selling them online or things like that. So... You know, if if you do grow them, it's it's good to be careful about where you source your plants from and just, you know, making sure that you hopefully aren't contributing to illegal collections and stuff like that. Yeah. I have heard that happen with other rare species of things like orchids. Yes. Yeah. It definitely happens a lot with orchids as well. And it's really sad because I guess, you know, it can sometimes happen that, you know, there's lots of like wildflower groups and stuff on on Facebook and things like that. And people might post in there like, oh, I saw this amazing plant. And if they say the location where they saw it, sometimes that means that other people will then go there and dig the plants up. And especially with orchids, that's, it's really, really bad because orchids, you know, they rely on often fungi in the soil and particular pollinators so if you dig them out and take them home they're not really gonna gonna survive anyway yeah Yeah. so it's better you know if we just leave them where they're growing and you know and and of course they also play roles in that ecosystem so if you take them out then you know you're sort of damaging that that part of the ecosystem yeah yeah I wonder what the fine is for taking them uh, I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, there is definitely fines for collecting plants in, especially like national parks and stuff, um, especially here in WA. So hopefully that's a bit of a deterrent for yeah. people. Yeah, you can take photos. You don't need to take it with you. Exactly. Yes. Take photos or, you know, go and do an illustration in the wild, stuff like that. Like there's so many ways you can go and appreciate and enjoy um, these plants without digging them up. <laughs> yeah. In botany, you mm. learn about so many different particularly vegetation types or yeah. different ecosystems. How did you make the decision and become inspired to focus on carnivorous plants? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I guess what really fascinated me was ways that plants have adapted to, you know, um, difficult circumstances um, for growing and that sort of thing. So, as I said, especially here in the southwest, so many of our plants have had to adapt to things like poor soil nutrient conditions, to fire, to salt tolerance, that sort of thing. And I guess, yeah, the nutrients one always fascinated me. When I was looking for an honours project, I basically was looking for something to do with either carnivorous plants, parasitic plants, or mycoheterotrophic plants. Wow, what is that? That is basically plants that feed on fungi. So like orchids could be considered under that term. Yeah. I've gone through an entire botany degree. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. I only came across that term in in recent years, but yeah, that's sort of what they they call those. And then you fell into carnivorous plants. Yes, luckily not literally. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, I have a weird question. Do carnivorous plants poo? I mean, they excrete. Oh, do they excrete things? Yeah. Um, but in terms of pooing, uh, that's a good question. I mean, they they do sometimes excrete things like like salt tolerant plants will take up a bunch of salty water and then they'll excrete the salt out of their leaves. Like, and I guess you could call that pooing. <laughs> yeah, I might have to read up on that. When you've done field work. Mm. Obviously, well, this podcast is recorded in the southwest, so you probably yes. don't have to travel too far. But where have you gone to look at carnivorous plants all over WA? Like, where are some of the places? Yeah, so I've I've travelled all around the southwest corner. So, you know, up to Kalbarri National Park, down to Albany, over east towards, like, Hyden. They're pretty much everywhere. And even, you know, in the Perth Hills, really close by, um, I've been to all sorts of places and you can see carnivorous plants growing in pretty much any bit of bushland in the southwest corner. But I've also been lucky enough to get to go up to the Kimberley region two times. Um, And that was amazing because it's such a, the spot we were in just felt so pristine and it was a completely different sort of vegetation to uh, what I was used to and completely different set of carnivorous plant species up there although same genera of of plants um as you would find down here but yeah so I've I've been around those I've I've not unfortunately been to a lot of places outside of WA to see carnivorous plants in the wild it's sort of on my botany bucket list you know to go and see a few species in other parts of the world in their natural habitats but um yeah done plenty of WA yes (laughs) what does a day in field work look like for you what is it because I think if you've never been out in the field for study or for work Mm. it's quite a strange experience and it does vary from different parts of botany yeah what do you actually do if you're out in the field and researching so for me for my research um it would basically be driving out to a particular site and finding a spot that has um, an abundance of carnivorous plants there. Um, And for my research, it involved collecting leaf samples. So I would take a few leaves from a few different carnivorous plants, not the whole plant usually, just, you know, again, don't want to over-collect plants in the wild. And I did uh, need to have a a license, um, you know, in order to make those collections. 
Um, but yeah, collecting a few leaf samples from the carnivorous plants and from non-carnivorous plants in the same habitat and also some insects and some soil. And, you know, basically you, you get all these samples, you put them into paper envelopes or bags and you label them and you take down, you know, your GPS coordinates and your sort of description of the habitat you're in. And that was pretty much it for my fieldwork. Like it was very simple just making some collections that I could then analyse later in the lab. But I guess, you know, one of the things with fieldwork, especially here in WA, is is safety and that sort of thing. And I said before about people often ask about, you know, oh, is it dangerous, you know, working on carnivorous plants? And, yeah, it's like the plants aren't the dangerous part. It's more things like, you know, the sun and making sure that you're, you know, protected from the heat and, and sunburn, looking out for snakes, even though... Yeah, in all my years of fieldwork, I've actually never seen a snake in the wow. wild. I don't know if I'm just not looking hard enough. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> just hiding really well. Yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and you come across a lot of things like spiders, but I think a lot of people get scared about that sort of thing. And, and obviously there are reasons to, to be um, careful, but oftentimes, yeah, I just see these spiders and I'm like, oh, wow, it's so cool. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. As long as you just, you know, keep your distance, I guess, it's usually they're fine. <laughs> so you like field work? I, yeah, I really like field work. It's so nice to get out into the bush and, you know, to see all these plants. And especially because if you go at different times of year, you see completely different plants, you know, and different flowers are coming out at different times of year and that sort of thing. Um, and it's just nice to, you know, be out in the sunshine or, you know, in the rain if, if that's what's the case that day you're in it yeah exactly you're in that yeah yeah Yeah, I have had some interesting situations like a few times me and uh, my fieldwork volunteers who come and assist me we've camped out for a few nights if we're going to you know distant sort of places and I did have one really unfortunate camping incident where it was raining and my tent had a hole (gasps) in it and I went out to try and like patch it up and I got my hair stuck in the zipper. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> it was really, I was just like, really? You're yeah. going to do this to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was it like day one of that trip? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was like pretty early on. That's and I was not just a like, good oh, start. Yeah, this is a bad omen for the rest of the trip. <laughs> do you have a favourite field trip you've ever been on? Mm, probably the ones where I got to go up to the Kimberley. Yeah. Yeah, it was just such a fascinating you know I felt very lucky that I got to go up there and part of the trip involved you know flying over these really remote parts of the Kimberley um, to the remote field station where we were based and just seeing the landscape from up there was incredible and also yeah just being down you know on the ground it was amazing as well one of the best things about those trips was we had a uh there was a the station dog bonnie um she was super cute and she would come out with us every day she would she would sort of chase us along um (laughs) to all of our field sites and just sort of be there you know I feel like she was part of the team and protecting us and by the end of the day, she would usually be so tired that um, she would sit on the back of the like quad bike with us oh. to to get back to the station. So. That is fun. You go out in a quad bike to go find them. Yeah, so there were there were sort of trails that we would follow in the quad bikes to to get out to our sites, and yeah, so it was it was really cool. I'd always find that funny how science is sometimes seen as something that we're stuck in a lab or you're stuck in a computer or Mm. even stuck in glass houses which I'm sure you've spent plenty of time in yeah yeah and then in reality sometimes it's like out on a motorbike exactly (laughs) yeah I mean definitely field work can be really adventurous and 
Oh, there's so many awesome tales of, of fieldwork adventures. And I think there's actually a book that's about like fieldwork fails or oh, something like that. Which, oh, I need to find that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a illustrated and Great. Um, yeah, hilarious. When you're in the lab, mm. how do you analyse the samples? So I guess the first part of that is that I actually, the lab that I was in was in Germany. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was really lucky that um, one of my supervisors is based at a lab in Germany in the University of Bayreuth, uh, which is like a smallish town in Bavaria. And so I got to, all of the samples that I collected, I would first of all dry them in an oven here so that they are, you know, all dried out and then I would take them to the lab in Germany. How do you even declare that for customers? (laughs) Why does this strange lady have pieces of plants in her bag? Yeah uh, well so I guess when you're coming into Western Australia there's definitely you know restrictions on on that sort of thing but um, I think it's less you know it's less restricted if you're taking things out and and for research purposes so you know we had our all the necessary paperwork and yeah. things like that but it wasn't yeah it wasn't really a problem I mean it it would have been a problem I think if we were taking any uh, samples of species which were um, like endangered or like on those critically endangered or threatened lists but then you have to go through a different sort of protocol but yeah, yeah for, for what I was doing it was yeah it was fine so the test that you did over in Germany mm. was that using equipment and stuff that you didn't have here or was this just a really awesome case where you got to do it there for the sake of it it's kind of a really awesome case where I got to do it there um, we do have facilities in WA but it actually it worked out so that um, you know going over there I I it's actually a bit cheaper to do it at the lab that I was wow. at over there. But also, more importantly than that, it was the opportunity to work with this professor, um, Professor Gabauer, who is like a world-renowned expert in stable isotope analysis, which okay. is the kind of analysis I was doing. Um, and he actually wrote one of the or co-wrote one of the first papers about carnivorous plants and using the stable isotope analyses that I used. So... Yeah, before I'd even met him, I'd read this paper and thought, this is cool. I'd love to do research about this kind of stuff. So, yeah, so it was just a really lucky situation. He actually was in Perth, um, I think it was in 2014, which is when I was, um, or 2014? Yeah, 2014, when I was finishing my honours research. And he is friends with one of my honours supervisors. And, yeah, he was keen to, to have a student to work on you know, some sort of collaboration and yeah, lucky for me, my honor supervisors thought, Oh yeah, that would that would work out. Oh, so <laughs> you got to be that lucky person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Mm. Do they have carnivorous plants in Germany? They do, yes. Um so they have some Drosera species, they have Pinguicula, which also have a sticky trap like Drosera, but totally, you know, not related closely. Um and they also have Utricularia, which are the bladder warts which is a great name um and they've got a suction trap uh and they might have some others but those are the ones that i'm i've seen those ones at least (laughs) yeah were people in those labs interested by the work you were doing oh yeah totally um and some of them were also doing research about the native german carnivorous plant species um and also doing research about like orchids in in germany and in europe and all sorts of other things as well, like the stable isotope analyses could be used for all sorts of things. Someone was working on something to do with like forensics um, and also on like food quality testing. Yeah, there's so many, 
different applications for it, yeah. How long did you get to spend there all up? So I went there three times all up during my PhD. Sometimes that was like in alongside going to a conference in Europe and tacking on um, that as well. Um, and yeah, I spent about three months each time over there working on the samples and doing some writing while I was there as well. So what point are you up to now in your research? So now I'm at the sort of the pointy end. I'm trying to finish writing it all up. Um, So I've got all my data and I've done, you know, all the analyses and I'm just trying to get them into sort of ship shape for papers and for chapters of my PhD thesis. And yeah, it's it's interesting sort of getting the stories now with... um, as the research is sort of built up and and I can actually see like, oh, this is the answer to that question that I was wondering at the beginning of my PhD. So, yeah, wow. Yeah. Kind of yeah. coming back to the start again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's really cool actually to go back to the beginning, you know, some of my notes back in uh, 2015 when I started and to think what were the questions I was really fascinated by then um, because, you know, along the way, a PhD is a long journey and you can sort of forget, I guess, like what was the original thing that got me passionate about this? And it's coming back to that at the end is, is really good as well, especially for motivation for writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What were some of those questions that your PhD is trying to answer? For me, like some of the questions that I was really fascinated by and really wanted to try and contribute to in my PhD were around the diversity of carnivorous plants that we have in WA. So especially with like the Drosseras that we've talked about, um, we do have so many species and they come in all different shapes and sizes. Um, You know, we've got ones that are the size of a $2 coin. Yeah. And then others which are climbing up to a metre in height. Yeah. So it's a really varied um, group. And I wanted to sort of know, well, yeah, like why um, is there so much diversification and what is the difference in all of these in terms of their nutritional ecology um, and what can that um, maybe teach us a little bit about how and why they might have evolved in all these different ways. So, yeah, that was a big question that I was interested in. Um, And another was to do with the way that these plants interact with other species in their ecosystem So there's a particular plant um, which has become a big focus for me in my PhD. Um, The group is called Biblis. Okay. Um, They're also known as the rainbow plants. That's their, like, common name. Are they rainbow? Well, the reason why they're called that is because they've also got these sticky leaves to capture prey. Um, And sometimes, you know, if you see, like, a kind of a field of them with the sticky dewdrops and uh, it's in the right level of sunshine it kind of shimmers Aww. like kind of rainbow kind of shimmer so yeah it's very pretty um, until you look really really close and you see all the bugs <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah this this particular plant um, yeah even when you do look really close and you see all these bugs stuck in the sticky you know hairs of the biblis plant Um, You'll also see another bug on that plant, which isn't stuck. It's actually walking around on the sticky leaves. Wow. Yeah, and it was sort of this, you know, question of, well, what's going on there that, you know, you've got a bug that's not being trapped. Um, Does it play a role in the plant's ecology, you know, in terms of its uh, nutrition? So I've been trying to look at, well, does this bug 
you know, it, it feeds on the insects that have been caught Whoa. by the plants. So, yeah, it's sort of a scavenger, I guess, you know, and it seems to live on the plant. And so I was curious whether, you know, is it kind of just stealing nutrients away from the plant by, by eating away on the, on the leaves? Or could it maybe be contributing a bit back to the plant through its poop, yeah. you know, sort of fertiliser directly onto the plant's leaves? And so, yeah, I've been trying to trying to help answer that question a little bit with my PhD research as well. Do you have any ideas? I do a bit. What I've found, I guess, is that it's maybe a little bit more complicated because, you know, the plant can digest prey on its own. Um, it also produces digestive enzymes or, or I guess, and or the bug that lives on the plant can digest the prey. So it's sort of a, a more complex question to figure out, well, how much is coming directly from the plant's work and how much is coming f- sort of indirectly through the bug's work. And yeah, so I think I think we need to do a bit more study on it to really tease that apart. Outside of doing your PhD, I know you love doing science communication. Yes. <laughs> You've done quite a bit of public speaking. Yeah, I mean, I, I love talking about plants and especially carnivorous plants in case you can't tell from from this and yeah I I often give talks for like local societies and things like that yeah um, like naturalist club and um, the friends of Kings Park and those sorts of groups and also sometimes for like schools and community sort of groups like I gave a talk for the Perth Science Festival a couple of years ago and yeah I I love it because it's so much fun and I you know what I found is that people of all different ages and backgrounds all of them are are at least a little bit fascinated by carnivorous plants and so it's it's sort of fun as well because it's like a gateway to then talking about other cool plants too and just getting people to think like back to that oh plants are boring like oh no actually these plants are pretty cool and if these plants are cool then actually also these other plants are cool too yeah so yeah I love it. Do you ever find people are surprised by how many we have in WA because I think sometimes people picture just the Venus flytrap or that one from Mario that comes out. Yeah yeah (laughs) the piranha plant yeah yeah. Are people surprised? Yeah quite often like I mean I guess I should say some people are already well aware of the fact that we have so many carnivorous plants here and it's fun to talk to those people just about to get into more nitty-gritty detail but then other people that aren't as familiar with um, our native plants or our native carnivorous plants yeah they're they're shocked you know to find out that we have so many here and especially that there's so many different types as well like People do often think of the Venus flytrap, which has this snap trap mechanism, but there's actually four other different types of traps. And on top of that, there's like, or I guess within that, there's like 800 different species around the world and popping up in all sorts of different parts of the, you know, evolutionary history of plants. So carnivorous plants, actually, it's not just sort of one time that, carnivorous plants have evolved there's actually multiple points where carnivorous plants have popped up um and i think yeah the latest estimate is maybe about 10 different times that um carnivory has evolved in the plant kingdom yeah amazing Mm. what are some of the challenges of communicating botany to people do you find people are generally pretty interested or do you have to kind of find ways to make it relevant 
Yeah, it sometimes depends on on the group that I'm talking to. So, I mean, sometimes if I'm talking to people, um, like if it's for a talk, they're obviously already interested to learn about um, plants and carnivorous plants. But if it's more of that um, on-the-spot psychom where you're just sort of talking to someone at a party or something and they ask about what you do, um, I actually find quite often when I tell people I'm a botanist, they're a bit like, oh, Oh, what does what does a botanist yeah. do? You know, so that's always quite fun that you get to sort of explain a little bit more about about that, and then segue into how cool plants are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I I do try and find ways to make it relevant to the person that I'm talking to, um, and sometimes that'll mean you know coming at it from a different angle, like a historical angle, for example, and talking about. Charles Darwin and how fascinated he was by carnivorous plants or maybe if they're really interested in bushwalking then but for other reasons that I can be like oh well you know you could see plants carnivorous plants out there as well yeah yeah it's it can be hard sometimes but I find that I don't know I'm usually so enthusiastic that (laughs) other people end up being like Oh, okay, cool. Like, oh, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. If, you're, if you sound like you enjoy what you do, then it yeah, makes which I really do. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. really good. Mm. Is it something that you think you'll keep researching forever? Oh, I would love to keep um, researching about carnivorous plants and other cool plants. Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways it's sort of like I would love to do that, but the academic world is a little bit tricky sometimes. So I'm currently trying to, you know, apply for postdocs and things like that to keep working on carnivorous plants and and I'd love to do more research about how people and carnivorous plants interact but yeah it's it can be a bit tricky on the postdoc job market so I don't know if anyone's listening (laughs) (laughs) so as much as they're difficult opportunities to get they Mm. could be so wide and varied and exciting yeah for sure yeah and I mean that's the thing like it would be amazing to be able to keep researching this thing that I'm passionate about and there's definitely some downsides of the world of academia but you know the positive is that you get to study something you're really fascinated by and I would love to do that I mean I guess in the end as well I'm also really keen on science communication so if I ended up doing more work in that space, I'd be completely happy with that as well. So I guess, yeah, I suppose there's a few things that I'd I'd really love to do in my in my lifetime um, to do with carnivorous plants. And I don't know exactly how they would be if they were research or if they were, you know, maybe writing a book or something like that. But I definitely want to keep working on them Um yeah, in the future. So. Yeah, mm. I can see why. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited about them already. Yeah, yeah. Is there a carnivorous plant in the world that you wish you could go and see or that's on your list to go and find? Oh, definitely. I guess one that I would love to see in, in the wild, although I don't know how rare this one actually is, would be a Nepenthes species, which is named after David Attenborough. Wow. Yeah, it's Nepenthes attenboreae. So. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so I'd love to see that one. I think that one's in Borneo. What is it actually like? Um, so it's a it's a big pitcher plant. So it kind of looks like a jug of water, I guess, um, with a little lid. And it's filled with, you know, a pool of digestive juices that insects fall into. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's heaps of different Nepenthes, actually, which some of them have really fascinating interactions with animals so in the same way I was talking about Biblis and how it has this bug that crawls on it and eats the other insects um, there's a lot of Nepenthes that have like symbiotic 
relationships with animals. Um, there's one that has a, a tree shrew, which is kind of like a ma- like mousy sort of looking thing, yeah. um, which sits on the rim of the pitcher and it poops into the plant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it feeds as well on the nectar underneath the lid of the plant. So it's sort of a kitchen and bathroom all in one. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Where's that? Uh, I think Borneo as well. Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah. cool. Yeah, so Borneo is on my list, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I think that's also where you can see Rafflesia, which is the biggest, not carnivorous plant, but the biggest flower in the world. Do you know the one? It's um what is it, it looks like a Pokemon. I think it's oh, Wild it does Plume. Too. Yeah. yeah. I do know the one you're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Does it smell bad? It smells as well? really bad and that's to attract pollinators. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what do you wish people knew about carnivorous plants? I guess it's just how beautiful they can be. Like I think often carnivorous plants, you know, in popular culture they're portrayed as these man eating monsters and I think in reality they're actually really, really beautiful plants. They're worth admiring and and especially for what they do in the wild. Like, you know, they, they have a place in, in the ecosystems that they're in and so appreciating them for their beauty and their ecological value I think is something that I, I, I wish more people would think like how amazing they are in their natural habitats. Are carnivorous plants endangered or threatened at all? Yes. So, yeah, so there's, you know, there's about 800 different species worldwide and different species are threatened by different things. But there there was a kind of global review of threats to carnivorous plants and some of the big things that came up in that were things like, obviously, habitat loss. So, you know, when we clear land, um, we're, we're clearing habitat um, for these species and also things like pollution. So you know, a lot of carnivorous plants are very sensitive to their environment. So if you uh, have a lot of runoff from like agricultural, urban or industrial places getting into a, an ecosystem, it can totally change the sort of um, the, the soil chemistry and the hydrology and things like that. And that can really impact carnivorous plants. And then, yeah, the sort of illegal collection side of things is another big impact, especially for some of the more iconic um, species of kind of its plants, the ones that are really popular in cultivation, like the Venus flytrap and uh, the different Nepenthe species and that sort of thing. And that's a really, it's a tricky problem to solve when it's such a, you know, it's a, it's a global issue as well. Mm. So yeah, um, that would be something that, you know, if I could do research in the future about how to better protect and conserve yeah. carnivorous plants and other plants in the wild, that would be, that would be really cool as well. Mm. Now this is my arguably my favorite Mm -hmm. part of the podcast and I don't think you're going to be great at this (laughs) but I would like to know a fun fact about carnivorous plants Uh, my fun fact is that Charles Darwin did some of the earliest scientific research on carnivorous plants that's so cool yeah he actually wrote a whole book called insectivorous plants um, and detailed all sorts of weird uh, experiments that he did like feeding the plants little bits of um, meat or egg or whatever like that just to see how they'd react did they eat it um yeah so like if they were fed things like meat or egg then the plants would react so he was looking at um drosera rotundifolia which is like round leaves sundew and the little sticky tentacles would wrap around if it was a bit of meat but he also tried putting things like a bit of sand or glass or you know stuff like that and they didn't react to that so they can tell yeah so he was able to find that yeah it was um substances that uh you know have like nitrogen 
in them or like proteins and stuff like that is what the plant reacts to so it's yeah it's pretty cool that's amazing yeah and goes to show how far back the interest in them goes yeah definitely and uh, you know there's there's mention of different kind of risk plants earlier than that as well like in terms of um taxonomy and that sort of thing but i think yeah darwin was one of the first to show that yeah actually these plants are kind of turning the tables on that natural trophic like food web order sort of thing and yeah it was sort of you know it was a bit of a tricky thing at the time as well because he was sort of saying you know these plants are going against that natural order of things but I I also want to mention here that you know Charles Allen wasn't alone in doing research on carnivorous plants he often gets a lot of the limelight of that early research but um, there was a, a woman called Mary Treat who also did some really cool research on carnivorous plants at around the same time. Um, and she was actually a colleague of Darwin's and they oh. wrote letters back and forth. Um, yeah, so she's, yeah, she's and really he cool. he got all the cred. Well, yeah, I guess he gets more of the, the limelight these days, but I'm trying to like, every time I talk about carnivorous plants from now on, I, I want to try and sneak in some of the amazing women that have done research on carnivorous plants throughout history and yeah Mary Treat's a really cool one for sure and I have no doubt in the future your name will be among (laughs) that list Laura oh that would be nice (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me thank you for listening to the particle podcast check out more of our content on all the socials as well as at particle.scitech.org.au this episode was recorded in the wonderful science hub that is Western Australia particle is powered by Scitech